Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today on LGBTQ&A, I'm talking to Alexander Chi. Alexander is the author of the new essay collection called How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, and we talk about that, about being a professional gay writer, as Alexander calls it, how that's affected his career or not, and then also his experience living in San Francisco during the AIDS epidemic, and how what that period in time felt like feels very similar to what we're going through now. So all that's coming up. Before we get to it, though, if you like the interview, please subscribe. Subscribing, ranking us five stars, leaving a comment on iTunes is one of the biggest ways you can help new people find our show. So big thank you for that. And then as always, don't forget to check out our old home at AfterBuzz TV. They are the number one place for all your TV after show discussions. All right, without further ado, here's the interview. You know, it's possibly generational with how things have changed, but one of the things in your writing that it brought up for me were the feelings of when you're young and in the closet, even just the possibility of someone else being gay can consume your entire thoughts. And Mm. for me, it's like every waking moment. Right, right. I was thinking about this actually in the context of Love, Simon, actually, where I was watching it and thinking, wow, things are so different (laughs) and yet also not You know, there was nobody like that exactly at my high school when I was thinking about coming out, but there was this kind of stunningly beautiful, but also very effeminate queer punk named Brandon, I remember, who I was obsessed with and also afraid of at the same time because I was so afraid of how much of a target he was. And even then, at that point in my life, kids were already calling me faggot and making fun of me. And this was before you were out. This is before I was out, I know. it's. I often joke that when you're gay, you're the last to know. Everybody kind of figures out before you. Yeah, I just think that we learn, we have this heightened awareness. We have this heightened awareness looking for queerness in other people. And we learn that when we're in the closet. Right. And I think for a long time, we called that gaydar. We may still, I don't, people still use the word gaydar. I haven't heard it in a while. (laughs) I think kind of because it connotates like stereotypes. We're trying to get beyond those maybe. Maybe. Yeah. In regards to one of the summers in your youth, you wrote that it was the summer of wanting impossible things. I still feel that pretty profoundly now. (laughs) To use your own language, like don't you still want impossible things? Oh, sure. I wonder sometimes about the relationship between that and what used to be called best little boy in the world syndrome, uh, which was, you know, this kind of like high performing gay man who was trying so hard for everything to be perfect, as well as to be very, very successful, because that was some kind of almost some way of like apologizing to your family for being gay. And I think I definitely suffered from that. When I finally came out to my father's oldest brother, It was only after I had a book out that I could give him as if to say, well, I'm gay and an author. (laughs) And, you know, there's probably a certain amount of like Korean overachiever syndrome in that also. But I do think that willingness to want something that seems impossible and to hold on to the pleasure of wanting it, even within the hopelessness of wanting it, I think that has a certain magic to it and even a certain political power. If you can sort of turn that same 
gaze on something else that seems impossible, like getting Trump out of office or protecting our rights even more than we have, or actually finding a real cure for AIDS. And even early on coming out of the closet. Even just coming out of the closet. Yeah. It's hard to express how impossible it feels. There's something that I call the identification crush. You stay closeted until you fear losing the love of someone that will only love you if they know that you're gay. You fall in love with who you want to be next, in a sense, and that's often what brings you out of the closet. It's an anecdotal thing. There's no science to it. It's just something that I've noticed with a lot of my friends and a lot of stories that I see. For me, one of the most painful aspects was people assuming I was gay me not confirming that and then them saying like oh okay and thinking that they knew something about me that i didn't know right <laughs> and that felt embarrassing right and you resent it and yeah. it can be a kind a kind of a kind of break against whatever you might have done otherwise just because you want to have the ownership of that moment of coming out yeah I think too that whether you're, you've not come out of the closet yet or you've not come out as being trans or any other identity, that the mental energy to hide that, it's exhausting, but it also you can't just shut down your sexuality in your brain. So you just shut down like big swaths of attention and affection and right. all these feelings. I mean, I think the thing that I realized about coming out also is that it's continual. You're always coming out in new contexts. Your understanding of what that means changes, what it means to you, what it might mean to other people. You know, I had this kind of funny question the other day in a, during one of the readings that I gave. This woman asked me if I'd ever tried to hide what I was to like, you know, get farther in publishing. And I just thought it was so funny that anyone would think that because I've been professionally gay, as it were, quote unquote, since the 80s. So I've been like putting gay stuff on my resume and my CV all that time. I'd hope that if I had hid my sexuality to get ahead that I'd be farther along. <laughs> Sorry. But you know, I, I'm like, I'm thinking of a former student who, you know, went to Esquire magazine in the early 2000s. And he's, he brought my name up in an editorial meeting. This was like around 2002. And the, the editors there said, oh, we love his work, but he's too gay for us. And when he told me that, I just thought, oh, it's true. They really do talk about me like that. You know, now I have, I would have no, you know, Esquire actually recommended this new book. Well, that's fascinating because you, your face and your identity is not tied to your words when someone is reading your book. Because I think that that question is more applicable today to an actor who's on screen, you know, right. like kissing a girl, like playing straight. Right. And I would wonder that, although I probably I would never ask that because also there's no way for him to know, perhaps. But um, I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that, although it was in the 80s when that happened, right? Oh, no. Uh, 2002. Was, oh, okay. So that ruins my whole theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just after my first book had come out. You know, Edinburgh at the time that it came out was considered part of a group of novels by young gay writers who were working to be more sexually explicit than fiction had been up until that point, literary fiction in particular. So taking what might have been considered to be like the explicitness of pornography and bringing it into literary fiction. Very intentionally. Yeah, very intentionally. Speaking of writing out sex, in your new book, you reveal experience with sexual assault. And mm. I bring that up because in your previous work, you write about sex and sexual violence with a delicacy and a nuance that I'd previously only primarily read about from female writers. Hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. And I think that a talented writer can write about anything. And yet 
is something like sexual violence so intimate and personal that you really do need that lived experience to communicate it? Oh, hmm. I wonder. I wrote about this for the New York Times book review, how there was a period when I was in college where I realized that you know male privilege was real, that it also operated as a kind of intellectual barrier, that it created an effect where the man became kind of like a boy in a bubble who believed he was conquering real challenges, but actually all those challenges were being kept away. So the boy wasn't actually learning how to do anything. And so people were so trained to listen to the boy who was protected this way, that the boy thought that the boy was convincing, articulate. In fact, people were just obeying the boy. So I stopped reading male writers for three years, two, two, three years about, for, for the most part. I was really trying very hard to literally not be that guy. I think, I think that's to me, the, the criteria more than lived experience. Like, have you taught your imagination? Have you taught your empathy how to cooperate in terms of like trying to write fiction or nonfiction? I always think that we as queer people learn empathy early on because we're taught to identify with characters that do not look like us because we don't appear in literature or right. to movies that often. And we still want to connect. Yeah. But I mean, an example that comes to my mind was from Queen of the Night, where the main character is talking about her evolving relationship with the man she lives with mm -hmm. and how it's evolving to something more than husband and wife, but non-sexual, and he no longer relieves himself in her. <laughs> I think yes. very few men would describe sex like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's true. You, you mentioned magic earlier. Yes. And, uh, I want to go back to that because sure. I think that magic and spirituality and astrology, queer LGBTQ people have such a connection to that. And it feels new to me, although I, because it's suddenly everywhere, but I have to wonder if it's now just suddenly okay for us to talk more about that. Yeah, maybe. You know, I think it, it's possibly it's related to that relationship to impossible desire. I think for me, it mo most definitely was, it was like, oh, I have this impossible desire. I have this world that I want to see in place of the one that's here now. How do I make that happen? You know, as, as I talk about in the essay that I have on the tarot, you know, I started teaching myself how to read cards for all these very wrong reasons. I, don't, I mean, I think maybe all the reasons are wrong. I don't know that anyone enters the tarot truly like with a, a pure heart, to be honest. I think all of us are flawed when we come to it. And I think that's fine. For personal reasons, like seeking out something? Totally. Oh. Yeah. The only secret knowledge in there are the secrets that you keep from yourself, right? And that's the thing that you should be thinking about. I feel like many people keep secrets from themselves, but they don't know they're keeping that secret. Correct. Yes. And that's, that's what the tarot can really show you. you know, getting people to wake up to the resources that they already have in addition to whatever they won't like whatever you won't tell yourself isn't just about whatever you're afraid of it's also about your own strengths that you maybe don't know that you have it's about talents that you maybe have ignored or dismissed somehow because they weren't valuable to whatever your previous goals were a lot of times what people experience as an identity crisis i think is really just they haven't explored the rest of themselves oh that's interesting you know i don't know what i would ask a reader like there's nothing in my future that I'm concerned about. Yeah. You know, like I think it'll unfold the way I hopefully with hard work, let it. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, this is why some people want to know about the future and some people don't. And like people take turns being that person, <laughs> being, being one or the other. 
for a long time, for example, I thought I was not a particularly athletic person until I found yoga. And then I discovered that I actually really liked doing yoga and being more physical than I was. And that was an interesting realization to have in relationship to it because I thought, oh, I just, I don't even know. Like, what else do I not know? Is there more? What else have you found? More. Well, you know, I think even with like these essays, for example, I spent so much time working on The Queen of the Night and writing essays in the meantime that I came to realize that I had developed a public reputation as an essayist, <laughs> even as I still thought of myself as a novelist, but I hadn't finished the second novel. So it had become almost like a private identity. You know, people obviously still knew about my first novel, but chances were they had more recently read an essay. With Queen of the Night, I'm assuming there was massive amounts of research <laughs> that went yes, into that. there was. Did you realize that ahead of time or was it only in the process that you realized what a big undertaking it was? It was in the process, I think. You know, it had some of the challenges of biography, the challenges of writing history, but I think that the challenges were more intimate. You know, one of the things that I, did, I was fascinated by in The Queen of the Night was the way in which women lacked so many rights back then unless they were celebrities. And then they had access to privileges, which resembled the rights that women have now, but only as long as they were celebrities. She's not concerned with her character. She's concerned with everybody else's, who's prepared to throw her on the trash pile as soon as she's not beautiful anymore. And, or she's known for her great voice, and right. voices will fade eventually. They so there's always a, do. there's a time. Right, which is definitely a big part of that book. Yeah. Uh, not, before we move before we move off yes. of the tarot cards, to me as a reader of your work who doesn't know you, that came as a surprise. Is mm. that part of your identity to people in your life? People in my life definitely know about the tarot cards. I don't really talk about it. I definitely, if I read for myself, I don't put it on Instagram. You know, because usually they are private conversations that I'm trying to have with myself. So in a sense, I suppose you could say like the witchy side of me is probably like a very intimate side of me. I was in a coven in high school. I didn't write about it for the essay collection. It's definitely going to be a part of uh, one of my future novels. That's for sure. Did you have reservations with including the tarot in this book? No. Ah. No, that essay is actually like one of the, it's one that people have really found a lot in. And that was one of the ones that I knew definitely stayed in. Uh, you wrote about how difficult your process um, with dealing with sexual assault has been. Was that a, is your reservations about including that in the book and being so public about that? Definitely. Definitely. You know, I remember after the events of my childhood, all of us who had been victimized by that director, many of my friends from that group had to change schools. People were not kind. They had beliefs like what they would have done in the same circumstances, which they are always so sure of. So yeah, I had reservations. My experience with people is, is not to expect the best of them, I guess you could say. What you wrote about living in San Francisco during the AIDS epidemic, it felt so present to me, which you then acknowledge in the book. And something I wrote down that you wrote was that I think about how up to now I've thought that I lived in a different country from this, but this is the country that I live in. And I think that that can be copy and pasted into any essay about <laughs> this period in our time, in our history. Hmm. You know, there's just like a massive unknown for where we're going. And also like during the AIDS crisis, there's a really ugly part of our country that is being revealed and is impossible to ignore to a larger part of the country. I don't want to insinuate you wait that like these bad things are new, but for the majority of Americans, it's, it's suddenly in their consciousness. 
Well, you know, I think that uh, it's been said for a long time that minorities are where these kinds of regimes practice uh, things like taking away rights, mistreatment, etc. And the question of whether you're paying attention to that or not depends so much on your relationship to it and also whether you believe that this will ever happen to you. No. I think one of the most powerful essays I can think of that people should be reading right now is uh, the Iliad or Poem of Force by Simone Weil, which was translated by Mary McCarthy and comes to us from like the mid 20th century. But in it, she talks about how as a precondition to committing an act of violence against a person or a community, you have to objectify them. You have to turn them into an object and then you can kill them. Then you can mistreat them because they aren't human anymore. And part of being able to do that is your belief that it will never happen to you. You know, so she tries to set up a, a sort of relationship in the reader's mind to understand that whenever you see that happening, what you are watching is, uh, is the beginning of something more terrible, you know? So like in the, in the last essay, when I talk about, you know, the destruction of art is practiced for the destruction of people. That's what I'm talking about. That's a terrifying framework to view how trans people are treated in our country today. We're denying them public spaces with bathrooms. Right. Yeah. We're not allowing them the military. We're saying which that is a way scary. of also denying them healthcare. Yeah. and personhood. We move on when a trans woman of color is killed. Going off what you said, like this is practice for like larger groups, this minority group. I think we we should all be taking what's happening with trans people very very seriously. And if, if you're not, like you're not thinking it through. These conservatives have been focused on the bathroom issue for a while now. And it may have seemed to some people like like fighting over small stakes, you know? And I think that's the point. It's a bathroom, you know? But like if you were African-American in the mid-20th century, early 20th century, like access to bathrooms define the pattern of your existence. You know, we're, we're seeing that even... Even now, with the way with that Starbucks issue, with the two black men who were asked to who were arrested and uh, taken away, there's a relationship between that and a relationship between the trans bathroom issue for sure. And it can feel overwhelming to think of like we have to take all of it on, but I think that's I think we're capable of yeah, doing that. I think- and regarding what the quote from the book about this is not the country that I thought I knew, I think you also wrote that perhaps I will always feel this way. Yeah, and I have. I think that that is the sign of somebody who, as you said before, in your 20s, you saw how privileged you were. Yeah. And to be able to recognize that makes you feel uncomfortable in the world in a necessary way. Yeah. It's important to realize that part of being alive is learning things. And to imagine that there's some kind of end point where you won't have to keep educating yourself where you won't have to keep checking on yourself for blind spots and so on. Even just in the last couple of years, I've learned a lot about how to improve the ways that I interact with students, especially those who may not come from wealthy backgrounds or 
who come from infinitely less privileged backgrounds and in other ways, learning how to create a pedagogy that applies to them and doesn't erase them or erase their problems, if that makes sense. I realized it was easy to fall into a trap of thinking like, oh, everybody in this group is going to learn about writing and, you know, we're going to write about these difficult things, but not to also keep in mind how their relationship to those difficult things affected how they would be able to think about writing. Is that something that you see other teachers also concerned with? I do. Actually, I see a lot of people talking about it. I see a lot of people thinking about how do we teach students to write about uh, sexual violence, uh, assault, abuse? How do we give them uh, a sort of give them agency and also also give them room to protect themselves? I, I can tell sometimes when I think a student isn't ready to write about something, but is still trying to write about it and to sort of open up lines of communication so that student can at least signal if they need to switch gears. You know, they need to suddenly pursue a very different kind of story. And I think that you're talking about your students evolving as writers. I think it's really powerful to see other working writers do that too. For example, like your early fiction dealt with sexual assault, but I'm also thinking about Roxane Gay. Mm-hmm. In her early work, she mentioned it and she gave loose broad strokes and moved on. And then only her later work was she then able to explore that more and share more details. Hmm. So I think it's powerful to see these working writers do that. Yeah, I think uh, there's probably more writing about it now than there used to be. It used to like I think when I was writing my first novel, I was told repeatedly that no one would want to review a novel about these things. I wouldn't get a tour, that I wouldn't get a big advance. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And it's true that when I was at parties and people would say, "So, what's your novel about?" <sighs> I didn't feel like I could answer. Sometimes the thing that you're writing about isn't polite party conversation. That's not a reason not to write it, but it's a it has some kind of weird relationship to it. Yeah. It's an interesting time. There's a lot more openness, there's a lot more there's a lot more queer writing than I've seen probably ever. I think there's a fascinating conversation happening across generations, many generations that are finally able to have a conversation in this way about our community's histories. Things like that are very encouraging to me at the same time that these other darker things are happening. And I think in some ways it is even, it's related. You know, it's that sort of, this openness terrifies people who are involved with the Trump administration. They, they hate it. I think they hate it because they know it's strong. It's part of our strength, you know, so they attack it. And it shows a semblance of fearlessness, which is scary for them. Yeah, right. You don't want your opponent to be fearless, you know? <laughs> you don't, yeah. I mean, it was great to see how easily Adam Rippon could just dunk on Pence at the Olympics. <laughs> it was just it was relentless. He was like the queer version, practically, of the, the Parkland kids in Florida. Um, I think everyone's aware that something historic is happening. It's big. Yeah. In your work, I really appreciate that you don't try to sugarcoat how hard it is to make a living as a writer and just in terms of paying your buildings, uh, paying your bills, <laughs> paying the buildings you own. And I say that because I feel constantly like there's a stigma against hard work. You know, hmm. whereas this the story of uh, do you, oh, really? I I thought yeah. Um and I feel like that because I think like the story of the overnight success is a sexier story to tell than mm. I've worked my butt off for years and I had some really hard years that I didn't think I could do this, but here I am seven years later, I've got a novel. 
Right. And I used to be a cater waiter and now look at me. Right. And so I, I like seeing that it was hard work. Thanks. I, you know, I think the blockbuster narrative is something that's been around at least since the 80s. Took off with, to my mind, with Donna Tartt and The Secret History um, and Tama Janowitz and Brady Sinellis, these young writers who were suddenly getting these massive advances and becoming celebrities, you know, out of college or, or shortly thereafter. I would consider Queen of the Night to be a fairly a blockbuster novel. Thank you. And, you know, but I didn't, it definitely didn't, definitely didn't happen overnight. And you didn't make life-changing money from it, right? Well, I would say at the time that I sold it, it I did in the sense that the advance allowed me to... <laughs> did I write? It's, it's in another essay that's not in the collection where there was a, there was a kind of period where I was living with my mom again and writing in her basement when I was working on The Queen of the Night. Uh, I just, I had run out of grant money, applying for jobs, but I just didn't like, didn't know where the next immediate thing was going to happen. So there were like three months basically where I moved back home to just really focus on getting my shit together. And the advance that I got allowed me to set myself back up again and return to being grown as it were, quote unquote. Do you worry about money now? Yeah, all the time. I think I think more it's now that I just try to take care of it instead of worry about it. You know, trying to always keep collecting the what I can think of as like the smart financial practices. The last essay, you know, on becoming an American writer, you know, in that I talk about <laughs> saving up for dental implants. And it's it's funny because I've just finished them. Oh I'm really? Like, yeah, so I have my new teeth. I remember that essay because you said it was enough to pay for a mortgage on a house. Yeah, it was like Really? Yeah, it was I think I did, I had three of them and they were about $8,000 a piece. Uh, insurance paid for part of them, but the part that it didn't pay for, I could have definitely used for a down payment somewhere in New Hampshire near Dartmouth where I teach. That's going to feel pretty good to be able to spend that money, honestly, to have that to spend it. Um, it was royalty money that paid for it in the end, which was kind of great to have my books give me back my teeth. <laughs> That was pretty great. We're almost out of time. Before I let you go, okay. though, yes. you are spoken about in fairly glowing terms, a young, quite a few mainly queer, but young writers. You read their pages, you let them read your pages that are mm -hmm. unprinted, which is a pretty big gift. Why is that so important to you? Well, I think what I realized actually at AWP recently, I participated in a panel there honoring the life and work of James Allen McPherson, who just died uh, recently. People were telling all these stories about how much he had done for his students. And, you know, I, I was telling stories about remembering what he had done for me, even in ways that I didn't even realize. Like he used to tell us that it was our job to change the culture with what we wrote. And I thought <laughs> that's a really interesting and impossible project at the time as the young MFA student I was, was like, I would love to believe I could. I don't know that I do yet, but I think what I realized through the life of him also is that mentoring is part of how you change the culture. You do these things because you see something in someone else. Sometimes you can do a lot for them. Sometimes you can just do like the one thing. And sometimes it's all it needs, right? Like the all the situation needs is that you teach someone how to pitch an article. No one's ever bothered to tell them. They're too embarrassed to tell any of their friends that they don't know how to pitch an article. But like 
if you can teach someone how to pitch an article, you will change their lives. You know, all these things. Yeah. They, they like create, they create change. So it's been great to me to see, you know, former students doing amazing things like Angela Flournoy and Ayanna Mathis and Carmen Machado and, you know, Morgan Jerkins and, you know, and then, and then there's the students that people don't know about yet, but, or they, they don't know about it as much as they are going to. Even in the process of putting this book out, I had a lot of requests for interviews and I didn't take all of them. And I asked a lot of people to find another way to write about me that didn't require me to be interviewed. One of them just published a review of the book instead, and it was her first published review. We need more writers of color writing reviews. Uh, we need we need more of them, uh, even as we also need their books, you know, and encouraging them to do more helps create more all along throughout the culture. So it's a sort of, it's understanding how you can push people, even if you don't have a close relationship to them, in a way that can make some, make some change. Well, thank you for making time for this. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Thank you for making time for this too. And that's our show. The book we've been discussing is called How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, and I really can't recommend it enough. If you enjoyed the interview and haven't already, please subscribe. Subscribing, ranking us five stars, and leaving a comment on iTunes specifically is so important in terms of helping other people find our show. So thank you to everyone who's done that. You can also sign up for a newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of our new episodes and live shows. We've got a couple coming up this summer, one on either coast, so stay tuned for that. That's lgbtqpodcast.com, lgbtqpodcast.com. I should mention too that this summer I'm going to be doing AIDS Life Cycle. That's a 545-mile bike ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles. It's about seven days, and we're doing this to raise money for the life-saving services that the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and LA LGBT Center provides. If you want to or are able to contribute, I would absolutely love that. Every little bit counts. I have a page up at tofighthiv.org slash go to slash jeffmasters1. There's also a link in the show notes if that's easier and across all my social media. I'm on Twitter at jeffmasters1. That's also a great way to connect and recommend guests. I love hearing from you each week. All right, that's about it. Special thanks to our partners at Panoply, our old home after Buzz TV, the Elon University in Los Angeles studio, Jason Nimurdi, and everyone for listening. We'll see you next week.